I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. everyone, this is Chris Grosso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the MindPod Network. And my very special guest today is the one and only Mr. Noah Levine. Noah, thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. Happy to be here. Thanks. So I'm just, uh, I want to read your bio really quick before we dive into this conversation to give anyone who's not familiar with you a little background. So Noah Levine, author of Dharma Punks Against the Stream, The Heart of the Revolution, and Refuge Recovery, is a Buddhist teacher, author, and counselor. He has created a Buddhist approach to addiction recovery called Refuge Recovery that includes peer-led meetings as well as a professional treatment center. He is also the founding teacher of Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society with centers in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Nashville, and over 20 affiliated groups around North America. He teaches meditation classes, workshops, and retreats internationally. Noah holds a master's degree in counseling psychology and lives in Los Angeles. You're a busy man, my friend. Lots going on. (laughs) All of that is true. Yes. And thank you for taking the time. We were just chatting before we started. I, I, you know, Noah and I are friends on Facebook. He's been doing all these wanderlust events and hanging out with MC Yogi, throwing t-shirts into the crowd and running 5Ks and all sorts of good stuff, man. It's exciting. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Cool. Well, so thanks for taking the time to do this today. I'm excited to talk to you about refuge recovery, which is something uh, I've become very passionate about in recent years. So really quick, though, before we jump into that, to just to give some context and some background for anyone who may not be familiar with you or possibly hasn't read uh, Dharma Punks, for example, can you talk a little bit about what brought you to the Buddhist path? You know, I, it's obvious, you know, you're you're in recovery. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, about your younger years and addiction. And I know there's crime elements and all sorts of goodness there. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um you know, my sense is that I was born into uh, an environment that was a, a pretty good setup for a lot of suffering and also being introduced to the Dharma. So my father, Stephen Levine, you know, many people are familiar with his work. You know, and he by the time I was born, he was a meditation teacher and an author and 
Uh, my parents were divorced when I was very young. My mother was struggling with her own addiction. My father had a history of addiction, although he had been really in the kind of Dharma solution for a long time by the time I was born. So, my, you know, my early childhood um, was tumultuous and painful. And, um, you know, I was feeling suicidal by the time I was five years old. Yeah. And really, you know, with a, with a sense of with a sense of reincarnation, with a sense of I could kill myself and start over. This is painful and scary enough that I could, I would actually like to get out. And, um, and what happened for me was that suicidal ideation um, turned towards the drugs and alcohol. And I, you know, when I started getting high at seven years old and when I started drinking and smoke, you know, and, and doing cocaine. And when I found drugs at a very young age, I was eating LSD when I was 10, I was <laughs> Uh, eating mushrooms. I was, by the time I was 12, I was doing cocaine, you know, so it was just like really fast and furious uh, adolescent drug use. And for a long time, it was a solution and it was fun. And I heard punk rock when I was 10 years old in 1981. And I, I heard the pistols and I heard Black Flag and I heard all of these bands that were screaming about uh, injustice and inequality and ignorance and, you know, this sort of anarchist rejection of the status quo. Right. And so that punk rock music just kind of gave me meaning and hope. And the drugs took the edge off of the personal pain I was in. But as happens for all drug addicts eventually, um, you know, it went from solution to addiction and went from alleviating pain to creating suffering. Um, and I started getting sent to 12 step meetings when I was like 13 years old, cause I was getting arrested a lot, and they, you know, to go get my court card signed. And, and I don't remember that much from the 12 step meetings early on, other than they were talking about God and they were adults yeah. <laughs> yeah. and, and I wasn't ready. Um, but by the time I was 17 years old and I was really strung out on crack and I had started to inject drugs and was mostly on the streets and in and out of juvenile hall over and over, that I, um, the willingness, right, the desperation, the pain, my third felony arrest scared me enough to be, you know, to kind of give me a wake-up call. Now, that wake-up call came in the form of taking responsibility for my own actions and realizing that up to then I blamed society, system, police. I used to love to blame the hippies. It was my, you know, it was my parents' hippie <laughs> spirituality that I was rejecting, you know. And um, But there was that moment of, um, oh, actually, I got myself into this mess. And with that came a ton of shame for the actions but also a little bit of hope. If I got myself into this situation, maybe I can get myself out. Mm. And in that same time period, my father said, uh, I was telling him about how, what was happening for me. And he said, would you like to try meditation? And I was willing, right? There was that moment of willingness. And I said, I'll, I'll try anything. I'm desperate. Yeah. Yeah. So I started meditating in juvenile hall in 1988. And... And I had a powerful, a subtle but powerful shift. As we all know, meditation doesn't kind of work instantly. 
but I did get a glimpse for the first time in my life that through mindfulness, present time awareness, um, coming back into the body and out of my head, that I could ignore my head, that I could, I didn't have to obey my mind that was saying, drink, fight, steal, lie, cheat, you know, like my mind, which had such bad advice for me, I could actually bring the attention out of that and into the breath, body, present time experience, mindfulness. So that was really the kind of turning point for me was I started meditating and I saw through direct experience, this is practical, this is useful. And I started doing 12 step um, stuff and said, I know I'm an addict and I know I need to stop using. And I was locked up for about nine months in the juvie and then in a group home. And, and um, you know, and I, I found in the 12 step rooms community. I found fellowship, what we call in Buddhism, Sangha. Um, uh, you know, people like me, some people that I had known that had gotten sober. And so I, I felt appreciating of the 12-step rooms and the program. Um, but the philosophy didn't fit for me. Um, you know, it was too theistic. It was too Judeo-Christian. Um, so it, for me, as an atheist anarchist, uh, I, I was just like it didn't I, – I couldn't really buy into this thinly veiled Christianity or thinly veiled open-minded um, theism, right? God will remove your shortcomings. God make the decision to turn it over to your higher power. You know, and I, you know, I liked the people, and I, I even got a sense of spiritual solution. I got a sense of spiritual solution, but their approach to spirituality, the theistic, outside of yourself, uh, disempowering um, the, theism, in my mind. Uh, didn't resonate so much. But in Buddhism, I found a practice that felt very empowering, that allowed me to take full responsibility for my happiness, for my recovery, for my forgiveness, not waiting for it to be magically removed by some external force. So I really landed solidly in Buddhism as a philosophy and as a practice, but the Buddhist community wasn't so uh, interesting to me. It was a bunch of old hippies, and I was a young punk rocker. And, um, and, and, you know, so, but in, in the 12 step rooms, there's a bunch of young punks and alternatives, uh, people. And, um, and so I found my community over here in, in 12 step rooms and my philosophy over here in Buddhist sanghas. And it kind of played out like that for a long time until I eventually created Dharma punks and against the stream and, and now refuge recovery. Yeah. That's an incredible story, man. I, uh, you know, I, I, I was turned on to Dharma punks, I don't know, back in like 2004, 2005. Tracy um, from Connecticut, who was a student of yours, she started up the uh, Elm City Dharma Collective and Pablo Das would come out a lot. And uh, that was great, man. It was I, I, it's actually the first time I saw you. You came out and spoke there, too, one evening. And Vinny was with you. And uh, it was good. I brought my brother who uh, he's not really interested in spirituality or Buddhism, but he could even dig it. You know, the way you approach it. Um, you know, so people that the younger punk rockers and not just punk rockers, but you know, the younger kids, it's something that's relatable to. And I, I love that about your offering and also with refuge recovery, you know, I really dig the way that you approach recovery and we're, we're going to jump into that in a, in a second. Yeah. One thing I like about that, um, that I wanted to talk about before we get into the specifics of the book and the approach is that it was a community effort for you creating this. You you actually write in the foreword something to the effect of that 
even though the book is credited to you as the author, there was many people and many things that had to come together in order to make it happen. So again, before we jump into the specifics of Refuge Recovery, can you talk about the process of putting it all together? Yeah. Um, I think like maybe it's probably about eight years ago now, something like that. Um, Maybe 10 years ago, we created the um, Buddhist Recovery Network. And Kevin Griffin and myself, and, uh, you know, we sort of developed this nonprofit for Buddhist Recovery Network. And then we had the first um, conference, first and only Buddhist Recovery Network conference at my meditation center in Los Angeles. And at that conference, I proposed, uh, let's stop looking at the 12 steps and let's just look at Buddhism. Because Kevin and most of the other people were still interested in offering Buddhist perspectives on the 12 steps. And I was one of the voices that said, we don't need to keep translating this through a Judeo-Christian lens. We can just bring a Buddhist lens to to this perspective. Um, And so at that conference eight years ago, I said, here's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Here's core Buddhism and how it applies to addiction, recovery treatment and uh and so it was my first proposal and i put it out there and i just did a rough draft of it and then in that conference we had a big discussion and i took feedback on you know different people's perspectives of you know how it fits and what's missing and and then over a period of about five years after that there was a group from our sangha in los angeles um, that included Dave Smith and George Haas and, you know, some Dharma teachers that are in long-term recovery, Shannon Fowler and Andrea Davis. And so the, there's a big group of us, Mary Stancavage. Um, and we would get together regularly and say, okay, what needs to be edited here? How's the language? We made the format for the meetings. The format for the meetings kept changing. We kept saying like, well, let's try this. And, in the beginning, there was a big thing for me of how are we going to make this reproducible without needing a meditation teacher in every meeting? How is this going to be a peer-led group? Because Buddhism is so uh, hierarchical and there has to be an empowered Dharma teacher. So how are we going to offer Buddhism for addicts without empowered Dharma teachers in each group? And that was when we came up with, as a group, came up with like, hey, what if we have a script of meditation instructions that say, you know, read this line, pause, read this instruction, do two minutes of silence. And so that anyone could take the sheet, the script, and lead the whole group in meditation. So that was one of the things that came out of this group effort. So it was a really kind of back and forth and I would take the notes and then I'd go back and edit the manuscript and then I'd bring it back and I'd take the notes and I'd go back because somebody has to sit down and write it. But I really wanted it to be a group effort um, of us of us doing it. And so I actually wrote it in the plural, in the we of Refuge Recovery. Uh, and the truth is, Chris, I would have liked to have published the book anonymously and to not have my name on it at all. Hmm. I would have liked to have just put it out there. Um, without me being the the person, as they did in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, 80 years ago. My publisher wouldn't publish it <laughs> if I didn't put my name on it. Yeah. And, you know, and then there was a lot of encouragement to me. Uh, of course, we could have self-published it. But there was a lot of people who said, you know, Noah, you have a 
platform. You've already written three books. You have a large community um, and, and you're known as a recovery Buddhist person. If you put your name on it, you'll help it spread. If you don't put your name on it, it'll take a really long time. And a lot of people won't actually hear about it because you won't get publicity. You won't get press. You won't get podcasts. There'll be nobody to go on the Chris Grosso show (laughs) if you don't put your name on it. Um, So I was a little bit hesitant, but said, okay, this makes sense. I'm willing to be the, you know, spokesperson, founder, mouthpiece for Buddhist recovery because I feel so passionate about it, because I feel so strongly that this is a huge missing piece in the you know uh, recovery world uh, that tends to be so theistic when it comes to you know spirituality, and to say actually there's this whole spiritual practice that is completely non-theistic. We don't talk about God at all. Right. We talk right. about compassion. We talk about presence. It's a it's a great great program. And thank you for sharing that backstory. I think that's very important. You know, it's not something that just popped up overnight. You've put a lot of time and effort into this and many other people together. Um, and it shows in the book and it shows in the meetings, many of which I've attended. Um, so let's jump into it. Let's talk about the refuge recovery process. You know, in the book, you write that refuge recovery is a practice, a process, a set of tools, a treatment, and a path to healing addiction and the suffering caused by addiction. So let's talk about that. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, because we're basing it on Buddhism, and of course, uh, you know, the 12 steps, which I've been a part of for 28 years, where it's this linear, you know, do step one, do step two, and here's a map to how to recover from addiction. And Buddhism offers the same thing. Here's a map of how to recover from whatever is causing you suffering. Um, so when I said, okay, let's do this, like I've already said, the four noble truths are a treatment process for all forms of suffering that are, you know, there's, there's the, um, teaching that through following the four noble truths, the eightfold path, you can eliminate suffering in your life of all kinds, including, and especially the suffering that addiction causes in our life. So the first truth of refuge recovery is the first noble truth of Buddhism, which is that there is suffering in life. And in refuge, we say uh, addiction of any form, any manifestation, whether it's substances or behaviors or even uh, loving an addict, that sort of Al-Anon family of of addict, uh, that this is suffering. You know, there is suffering in addiction. And then we have to break our denial, our minimalization, the way that we rationalize it or and turn towards the suffering and see it clearly. And then we can begin to go to the second. And so there's a, uh, as you know, there's a big uh, inventory in that first truth of I think there's 20, 25 questions or something like that. of You know, how has suffering manifested in your life? Then the second truth, which is the cause of all human suffering is repetitive craving uh, that manifests as clinging, manifests as aversion, manifests as, uh, you know, all forms of self-centeredness, this repetitive craving. And so then again, there's another inventory uh, that says, let's look at, now everyone has craving. It's our survival instinct. Everyone has it. 
But what sets the addict apart from the non-addict? The non-addict also wants life to be pleasant and not unpleasant. And so there's a big inventory of like, let's look at, is there trauma? Was there abuse? Was there betrayal? Is there a history of addiction in the family? Um, Is there, you know, personal things underneath that were fueling the thirst, the craving? Um, Because the core cause of addiction is the repetitive craving. Right. And so it's starting to look at what was fueling that in us. And then we can get to the third truth, which is uh, recovery is possible, actually. We can be free from craving. We can be free from the suffering that addiction creates in our lives. Uh, and part of doing that is to, is committing, committing to uh, our practice, committing to an ethical way of being in the world, committing to uh, service and you know, forgiving ourselves and forgiving others. So that commitment, that effort that's asked for, uh, we talk about taking refuge, taking refuge in your own recovery, taking refuge in the practices that will lead to your recovery, and taking refuge in the community. So, um, you know, there's some some popular views in current addiction treatment. One is like the um, uh, Gabor... Uh, idea that all addiction comes from trauma. So that's part of what we're looking at in the second noble truth. I wouldn't be so black and white about it myself. I wouldn't say all of the time, but it's very common. Mm. Um, And then there's another perspective that says uh, addiction is almost always an attachment disorder and that it's a disconnection and isolation. So part of that third refuge, taking refuge in fellowship, sangha, community is part of what's going to heal our uh, attachment issues and allow us to reconnect with uh, people and be of service and allow ourselves to be cared for and the intimacy. Now, from there, from that commitment, then there's the work, right? So there's suffering, the cause of suffering and the, the, the potential for recovery. And then there's the eightfold path that will lead to recovery, And that is understanding appropriately, seeing clearly reality, understanding that everything's impermanent, understanding that we're fully karma, we're fully responsible for our own actions, how we're responding to what's happening in our life, understanding the importance of kindness and compassion and forgiveness, of learning to understanding that the end of suffering is going to come when we develop compassion towards pain. Understanding that the end of suffering is going to come when we have non-attachment towards pleasure, when we break our addictive patterns. So understanding that abstinence from the substances or behaviors that got us into you know, this in this first place, necessary. We're an abstinence-based process program. With that understanding, we followed up with wise intentions, the intention to be kind, to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to, um, you know, to integrate mindfulness into every aspect of our life, these wise intentions. Mm. And then we go from there to communication and community. Uh, How do we show up? How do we communicate? Doing so in a a wise and careful way. 
How do we uh, affiliate with community, showing up to meetings, showing up to be of service, to sanghas, satsangs, whatever you call them, but showing up and and being part of community. Um, Then there's the uh, factor of action, which is a lot about renunciation. So we're in recovery. We've given up the drugs and the alcohol. We've abstained, uh, established abstinence. But now we have to look at honesty uh, and commit to truth telling and commit to nonviolence, not causing harm to ourselves or others, and commit to uh, being mindful and careful with our sexuality and not setting sexuality aside from our spiritual practice, but uh, saying, actually, my sexual desire is natural and my relationship to it is very important. And that there's a choice. Am I going to choose celibacy or am I going to choose uh, indulging in sexuality when it's appropriate? And and what's the wise relationship to sexuality? Mm-hmm. A commitment, you know, the minimum commitment is uh, abstaining from sexual misconduct, any kind of behavior that's going to cause harm to ourselves or others. And then the fifth precept, which is uh, ab- abstaining from recreational drug and alcohol use, period. Now, this is uh, a little bit controversial because I'm saying, uh, you know, whether you're a, even if you're, you don't have a substance abuse problem and you're a, a food is your addiction or gambling or money or sex, I'm saying still, as the Buddha did, I'm, I'm supporting complete abstinence. If you want to use this mindfulness-based path, you can't put substances in your body that block mindfulness. So a drug-free lifestyle, which is supportive for us drug addicts (laughs) who need to be abstinent. But it's challenging for some of the other addicts who say, hey, I can have a glass of wine. That doesn't block, you know, that's um, but there's a there's an encouragement in refuge, as there is in in all of Buddhism, for people who want to be awake to have total abstinence from recreational use of alcohol or drugs. Now, as we both know. Uh, most of our teachers don't follow that guideline. <laughs> <This is> true. <laughs> yep. So I don't want to get too uptight about it because most of my teachers don't follow the fifth precept uh, uh, in an abstinence form. Um, but I have for you know 28 years, and it's supported my recovery. And I've seen lots of other Buddhists come to come and, and follow it and see what a support it is to say I don't. That's not how I find my pleasure. I find my pleasure in other non-chemically induced uh, experiences. Yeah, which yeah. is great. It, it, very important. Um, you know, I, I'm just thinking as you're talking about that. Last night, my wife and I were out for dinner and it was our anniversary. So we went out and um, I had ice cream for dessert. And I was thinking actually afterwards about something you wrote. I think it was in Against the Stream, your second book about how, you know, ice cream can be pleasurable, but until we overindulge and then it becomes, you know, we're sick and it's not anymore. And I still at times watch the way my addiction works, you know, recognizing that, of course, the drugs, alcohol, these things are all just symptoms. So they say of of this disease model. 
And after I had that ice cream, and this still, and it happens other times too, it's like, oh, well, fuck it. You had the ice cream. Why not eat more junk, you know? And it's crazy to me how the mind still, you know, years later, it still works like that. So it's, you know, when people say, how long have you been sober and recovery? I get like the end of drugs and alcohol, but then I really, I take that question and really look at it. It's like, well, I don't know. Yesterday I acted out completely with food and sugar. Like, and I, and I know I did like. So it's it's an interesting thing um, to think about, um, but you know, didn't drink yesterday, so there's that. <laughs> so. And then there's just there's levels of uh, of health, yeah. right? There's levels of health and levels of finding balance, and the humility of imperfection. Sure. I'm saying, you know, I have these high ideals of abstinence and of always being compassionate and always being. And then there's the reality that I am not able to live up to those ideals, but I'm constantly striving for that kind of balance. Yeah. On a good day. That's very important. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing I want to explore a little bit deeper with you is the two inventories um, and how they differ from the other fellowships. Now, I know in AA you go through the steps less rigorously, so to speak, than NA, which has tons of questions for each step. With Refuge Recovery, I love that it's we have the first step inventory and the second step inventory. You already talked a little bit about them, but can you explain a bit more about the difference? You know, what do these questions explore? You know, in my uh, experience of working with them, it's the suffering, the craving, you know, that aspect. But what for you... What's the difference and what was the approach going into those specific questions? Okay. Uh, I'm happy to jump into that, but I also am aware that I was uh, talking about, I think I had made it to the fourth factor of oh. the full path and I didn't get through the rest so we can come back to it or I could finish that No, quickly. how about you finish that and then we'll dive into the okay. questions. Because yeah. um, I was talking about the, the fourth factor of action. Yes. Which was abstinence and sexuality and honesty and, yes. and violence. And then the um, fifth factor where we're actually looking at our relationship to money and work as part of our recovery. Um, traditionally in Buddhism, this is talked about the commitment to right livelihood and abstaining from uh, earning money in a way that causes harm to ourselves or others. And this is a big one, I think, for a recovery program to take a stance on what people do for work. Mm. Right. Like most most recovery programs are like, well, that's, you know, that's your business. But because Buddhism is a fully it's a life. uh, It's like, how am I going to live in this world? Uh, There's nothing outside the realm. There's nothing outside of it. And so we're looking at um, looking at livelihood and and encouraging people uh, if they're in what would be considered um, wrong livelihood. I had someone come up to me the other night. An event I was doing in San Francisco and saying, you know, I'm, I'm all in for this thing. And I've been a butcher for 30 years. And I know that, um, you know, part of what's being suggested here is to not be involved with killing animals or humans or, or anybody. He said, what should I do? He, he said, no, no, here's the here's the other thing. He said, I'm vegan. Okay. <laughs> he said, <laughs> he said I'm, I'm the vegan Buddhist butcher. Um, but you know, it's something that I got into a long time ago. I don't eat animals. He said, and I don't even kill them, but my job is to, you know, carve up animals' bodies. That's what I do. So I didn't have a, I didn't have a great answer for him. And, um, but, but this is a big, this is a big issue of saying like, okay, you might be in what is traditionally considered 
not a great, you know, job, you know, has something to do with killing or something, you know, even like selling, selling drugs, right? That's not so good. And in our culture, where if you work in a restaurant, you're selling the drug of alcohol. right? And even if you work at Whole Foods, you're selling the drug of alcohol, right? Um, So, you know, we have the legal and illegal issues about what's but but technically, from a Buddhist perspective, better to not be involved in anyone else's death or anyone else's intoxication. Mm. So being patient with people and saying, you know, find your own way with this. It's But we do want you to bring mindfulness to what you're doing for a living and your relationship to money. Mm. You know, not only what we're doing, but why we're doing it. And mindfulness of clinging, of fear, of you know, because money is such a central way that people suffer. And, and you know, we were talking about sexuality before, but I think like money and sex, like often is about how people relapse, you know, the fear of money, too much, you know, kind of money, not, not, not knowing what to do with it, not having a wise relationship to it, um, you know, end of a relationship. So really bringing sex and money in as a central part of our recovery whether you're a sex addict or a money addict, you know, even if you're just a run of the mill alcoholic, what's your relationship to money and sex? And let's get a healthy, wise, compassionate relationship to that very central part of our human experience. Mm. So from there, the next three um, are about meditation. The effort is the sixth factor uh, to be mindful and concentrated. Now, mindfulness doesn't come down until the seventh factor in the Eightfold Path. But all of what we're doing is mindfulness. Mindfulness is present time, non-judgmental, investigative, responsive awareness. So what's happening right now? How does it feel? And what's the wise response to what's happening and how it feels? And so that's a a long-term developed uh, practice and skill. But it's mindfulness of speech, mindfulness of relationship to sex, mindfulness of our relationship to money, mindfulness of what my intentions are. So all of it does come back to to mindfulness, the seventh factor. And concentration is also important, being able to focus the attention and sustain that focus mixed with mindfulness is what allows us to have uh, insight into the impermanence, you you know, you get really focused, you're looking clearly at yourself or at any phenomena, and you see, oh, everything's arising and passing and changing. And you start to see, oh, this isn't so personal. This is just the human condition. This is just the mind. It's not who I am. Um, And you start to see how unsatisfactory both pleasure are because of its impermanence and pain, and how if there's any clinging or aversion, we make it worse. We create suffering. So you have to have a fairly concentrated mind in order to see that clearly. So that's a brief overview of the refuge recovery program, right? The inventories, the taking refuge, and then these eight aspects of uh, of our life that we're looking at. Now, people who are listening who aren't familiar with Buddhism or aren't familiar with this already, it's a little bit of a shift in paradigm to go from like 12 step perspective that says it's linear right do the first step do the second step do the third you know kind of linear 
Buddhism's not so linear. The way that I've created is I do want people to do the first step inventory, which we're going to discuss in more detail. I want people to do the second step inventory. And then I want them to dive into my, you know, and at the same time, dive into mindfulness and forgiveness and compassion meditation. Mm-hmm. But we have to look at the eightfold path, not as steps, but as a wheel. So that this is a wheel with eight spokes on it. And, you know, and there's the spoke of mindfulness that supports all of the other spokes. And there's the spoke of understanding that supports all of the other spokes. And then all of the eight spokes are what allow our wheel to be uh, true, as they say, right? Well-tuned and to roll without wobbles. And so it's simultaneously developing these eight factors rather than one at a time. Right. Yeah, and I very much appreciate that the interrelatedness of all of it. It's uh, it's it is. It, I see how it, like you said, can be counterintuitive to those who have that more twelve-step AANA whatever um, background. But uh, I don't know. I as I've do- I've dove dived into the material. Um, like I said, over the last couple of years, I've found uh, it's really brought me deeper. And this is not to take anything away from those fellowships because they have served me very well and continue to because I will at times still go to those meetings and uh, and they're great, great people, you know, I, I agreed some of the um, the words and language used and the way they approach it doesn't resonate with me so much anymore. But um, so anyways, I do love this integrated approach you take. So. That said, let's let's go back into now the uh, the two inventories and and the approach, how it differs in the refuge recovery model versus the more traditional twelve step models. Well, you know the four step. Although you're you're more familiar with the NA's approach to the workbook. I mean, I actually went through the NA workbook once, but it was like you know twenty something years ago, and I don't really remember it that well. Um, the fourth step in, you know, in AA is, is pretty simple. It's what are your resentments and, you know, what was the cause and what was your part and how did it affect your life? You know, these four, these four columns. Um, now in refuge recovery, that's one of the 27 questions. <laughs> what is your resentments and what was your part and how did it affect your life? So then, you know, and it goes so far uh, beyond that of really looking at um, how are all of the ways that you've suffered? Um, How did craving, how did clinging, how did your self-esteem, you know, how did all of these things affect you and affect your uh, addiction? Where was there trauma? You know, where was there abandonment, neglect, abuse? Even in the the first question of the second uh, truth inventory, is what's your most painful memory? And how did that memory, uh, how was it affected by your addiction? And how did it affect your addiction? And so really turning towards the suffering and the pain of our history and acknowledging, I was drinking about this pain. I was using about it. And, you know, and it became more painful (laughs) rather than being a solution in the long run. So my sense is that all of the inventory, like 10th step, 11th step, and 4th step uh, inventories that exist in the 12 steps are covered in the refuge recovery model. But then it's, um, you know, 10 times as thorough 
uh, you know, it's asking you for 10 times as more uh, deeper kind of looking into the different areas and aspects of your heart and your mind and your life, not just at resentments. Mm. Right. Um, so something that obviously is absent from these inventories, as well as the refuge recovery book itself is the God stuff. And, yeah. you know, we had an interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago where you you made a point, something I'd never really thought about, where in regards to relapse, you know, you were saying that some people, not all, but some people may have relapsed in as a result of their dependence on God or their relationship to God or or that faltering, you know, them, they're being told one thing in this program and then it doesn't come to fruition and they feel abandoned. And uh, anyways, I, I would love to chat a little bit more about that with you. Um for obviously, because that's uh, that was a conversation people won't have access to. But um, so let's talk a bit about that. You know what? If if you uh, if you could revisit that, I I was really fascinated by that. Right. Well, you know, I feel I'm I'm willing, but I also feel a little bit hesitant because my my sense is uh, I I am a Buddhist yeah. atheist. <laughs> you sure. know? Like that's just sort of my 30 years of practice and investigation and 12 step and Hindu and Sufi and all of the stuff that I've practiced, I landed in a really non theistic view. Maybe just to help offset this, I yeah. still do believe in God, not in the traditional sense of God. So I, that's why I found it very interesting and I didn't disagree with anything you said. So maybe that will just help, you know, keep the balance here because I, even though I have a deep reverence and I practice Buddhism, I still do have a, a, uh, a, a respect and a belief in not the traditional God in the sky, but a, a, a God of my understanding, as they would say in the 12 steps. Yeah. So. And you, yeah. And you feel comfortable with that language completely. It doesn't conflict at all for me. Yeah. Right. So a couple of things that I want to say is that um, in refuge, we're finding, you know, people that are really, atheists are like, okay, finally, I don't have to, that language isn't here. And they appreciate that. People who are a bit agnostic or people, I think that probably 70% 70 of the people that are doing refuge recovery are in your camp where they, they don't, they like the 12 steps uh, good enough. And, but they also, they just, this is, was a missing piece for them and they appreciate this Buddhist perspective. Um, and then I'm also finding people who are totally and completely theistic, love the 12 steps, but they never got really taught how to meditate. And so they're enjoying that about refuge. So I don't want to present refuge recovery as like you have to be an atheist. Right. The truth is that's that's my truth. Right. But it's not the truth of a lot of people in the rooms. A lot of people are very are much more uh, integrating 12 steps and refuge. And um, but it fits for both the theist the non-theist the atheist and the kind of questioning agnostics so i think that that's important referring to that question in that conversation that we had in the past um where we were discussing um relapse and i and i said yeah i think that sometimes uh, people are told you know god is going to remove your shortcomings you are powerless only god can remove your alcoholism or your drug addiction, only a higher power can do that. Um, you know, God could and would if he, if he were sought. And, you know, it's just, it's so much of this, uh, it's out, it's not you, you don't have the power to do it. It's only by the grace of God. 
Um, I was visiting a treatment center uh, in Texas uh, uh, last year, and they said, you know, um, we here at this treatment center believe that the clients cannot choose whether they stay sober or they get or they don't. That you know that they have you know that all drug addicts, all alcoholics have zero choice whether or not they pick up. Only God chooses whether you relapse or not. And that's not an uncommon perspective. Sure. Uh, when you know when you start talking about powerlessness and you start talking about uh, you know God's will. So my sense is that sometimes people say, okay, I tried that. I, I pray. I did the third step prayer. I did the seventh step prayer and, and I kept relapsing. <laughs> you know, I turned my will and my life over to God and then I relapsed over and over. I think that sometimes people get disillusioned and they say, you know, I tried to believe that and it didn't keep me sober. And now I'm coming to refuge who's saying, it's your responsibility. It's through your own actions, through your own efforts, that you can learn to be uncomfortable and not drink about it. And that discomfort's not going to magically be removed from you. And it's going to take a gradual process to learn compassion for your pain, um, but that you're actually going to take full responsibility for your behaviors and your actions and not, uh, you know, not that it's going to be removed by some sort of grace. Right. Or divine divine intervention. Well said. And I wanted to bring that up because I didn't disagree at all with what you said. I thought it was a very fascinating point. And like I said, one that I had never really considered. And I think it is important for some people to take a look at that. You know, one of the very popular sentiments in the 12 step traditions is fake it till you make it. And I'm not anti that. I see the the benefit, especially for those who are just literally crawling in, you know, from from a horrible run or, you know, they've been out there for years. So I get that. But to a certain extent, you know, I think it's also important to keep an eye on that, especially when it comes to the higher power issue, because for some people they will find it and it will work for them. And that's great for others. They won't. And I think they will have the experience you just mentioned. Yet there's continuing on with that fake it till you make it fake it till you make it and if that's not their real truth then they're going to fake it into the grave some of them perhaps you know so i i really appreciated that perspective you know that you shared so well and there's this assigning of what i see as a signing of meaning where um if you stay sober it wasn't you it was god sure sure if you don't stay sober it was self-will Right. It was you. Anything bad that happens is your fault. Anything good that happens, it was God. It wasn't you. And so it's just this sort of disempowering rather than taking responsibility. Now, it works for a lot of people in the belief that a loving, caring, higher power is going to help you. It's a very wonderful, comforting philosophy. And I don't need to take that away from anyone. Um, People, you know, believe what they believe. Uh, but if you don't, if that doesn't make sense to you, refuge is a refuge for all of us that kind of said, oh, that doesn't that never really made a lot of sense to me. Yes, exactly. Very well said. I, and- I don't know what you think, but I think that like half of the people in the 12 steps that are using the higher power language actually don't believe in God at all. No, many of them don't. <laughs> that language because they have to, because that's the norm in that in that scene. It's what they know. One of the greatest struggles for me when I did a, a substance abuse uh, counseling internship, when I would work with the new clients who would come in, more than half of them, their biggest problem was with the God word. You know, they had whatever s- stuff they had 
shoved down their throats as kids or whatever horrible experiences and they want to recover and they want to do this or that but they couldn't you know that that was their excuse not to like give the 12 steps a shot and that's not to say that others finally went and and did find you know it useful but even in my case someone who like i said i i don't have an issue with that word i i see how it's loaded i totally understand it doesn't bother me so so much but you know because i can just get around it um but coming to refuge i just see how it goes a bit deeper for me in my life i always say when people ask you know what what's the path this or that i i'm not going to advocate one over another what i advocate is what works for you you know so if that is refuge ride that train all the way home if you find it in na or a go for it you know but I do love refuge in that regard. And my my refuge mentor who runs the Bolton meeting in Connecticut, um, we can talk about God, you know, but he is very much Buddhist and he he runs it the format as it is. And it's it's a great meeting. And like you said, I've you know, there are people come in. He he often tells me about the new people that come in. They believe in God. They don't that, you know, whatever. He he just loves telling me about them and uh, just the diverse crowd of people that show up at those meetings and find it very, very beneficial. So I don't know if I said this already. One of the things that we're finding that I didn't realize was going to happen was that, you know, we're getting people that are really 12 step averse. They don't, they've been there. They don't want to hear it. And then they start coming to refuge for a little while and they get a taste of community of Sangha, of fellowship. And they get a taste of, okay, now I have a philosophy and a perspective for myself. And then they find I can go to NA. I can go to AA now that I've gotten. So like refuge is actually a bridge to the 12 step programs for some people where, you know, now I can do both before I just couldn't go there. All I heard was God, God, God. Now that I have refuge, I have a path and a practice and a treatment modality and I can go there and fellowship and, you know, I can translate it and I can find my own way with that theistic language. Now that I have a non-theistic approach to my own recovery right right that's incredible you haven't mentioned that to me but it makes sense i see how it works i i wish you know this was around when i was doing that uh internship because what a pain in the ass that is to work with but that's what i love and i see now that i mean the meetings are just popping up continually in connecticut i live in canada now there's not one in ottawa i'm waiting 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 i would start it if i wasn't on the road half the time myself but Hopefully it'll be here soon. But in Connecticut, where I I'm where I live in the U.S., there's four meetings now in that little last state. There's four refuge recovery meetings, and it, there's one in pretty much almost every state now. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm thinking that there's somewhere between 150 and 200 meetings at this point, and um, and it feels pretty good for two years in. You know, the book's only been out for two years. We're having our second annual refuge recovery conference this summer in June in Los Angeles. Um, so it feels like it's growing. And I don't know if it's every state or not. I was looking at uh, Dave Smith, who's running the nonprofit and the website for refuge. Uh, we're creating a map thing for the website where you can kind of click on your state or your country and it'll tell you what meetings are there. Um, but we don't have it up and running yet uh, right. to see if, if it's I don't right. think it's every state yet I don't think it's 52 or whatever it's a lot I had looked a while ago and then also seeing it's in some other countries like I know Toronto maybe Montreal there's a few places in Canada there's a few places uh, yeah. 
I don't know, across the, the sea there. So that's great. And you also have a... Yeah, tr- oh, go ahead. Sorry. There's a few in Europe and there's a few in Mexico and in Central America, but yeah. That's really cool. And there's a treatment center, or at least one, or that's the one thing I wasn't clear on. With... Yeah, just, just one treatment center here in Los Angeles where I live. And uh, we opened a you know detox, residential, outpatient, sober living, the whole thing. I just really felt like, if I was going to put this perspective out to the world saying you can use this as your primary recovery tool, yeah. that people are going to be going to treatment centers and saying, I want to do refuge recovery and the treatment centers aren't going to know how to do it. Right. So I felt like it was responsible for us to say, uh, we'll, we'll offer a full, you know, from detox all the way through uh, extended care treatment. And so we've been doing that for about two years here in LA. That's incredible. So moving forward, What's your vision for refuge recovery? Would I mean, I think it probably goes out saying you'd like to see more treatment centers, more meetings. Is there a, a grand vision you have for it or the collective has for it? Not, spe- not I don't have a specific, more um, just I want to support it. I want to um, let it be pretty organic, like let it unfold in whatever ways it will unfold. I'm sort of as curious as anyone else sure. to see. Where, where will it be in 10 years or 20 years? I have committed, like you said at the beginning, I've got a lot going on. I've got two other nonprofit organizations and, you know, I'm, I'm quite busy, but I've committed a good chunk of my time and energy to supporting refuge recovery and whether it's the meetings or the treatment center. Um, and so far we are just in LA and at some point it would be nice to have treatment centers in other places. Um, so I'd like to see that happen, but I don't have a, timeline or a clear agenda with it other than I'm here to to support it and to help facilitate it uh, in its own sort of time. Yeah, very cool, man. So last thing, moving maybe slightly away from refuge recovery, what's uh, what are you working on now? Is there any new books down the pipeline or what are you what are you? I mean, like like we said many times, busy man, but what's happening in Noah Levine's world? Um, just, just what we're talking about now. I haven't, I haven't started a new manuscript. Um, and it's kind of actually really nice to not be working on a book. I mean, I did four books in, I guess it was, uh, you know, 15 years or whatever, but it just felt like I always had a book that I was writing. Um, and I had a passion for each one of those books. Currently my passion is refuge recovery. Refuge recovery does need some more literature. We are doing pamphlets for the meetings. Um, we, we need to develop traditions for refuge recovery that we don't really have yet. And so that's happening. That's part of what we do at this annual conference. Um, there needs to be like, a, you know, 12 by 12, basically, for refuge, maybe a workbook. So I'll probably put some energy into that, but I'm going to stick with refuge recovery right now. Good. I do. There is a book sort of brewing back here that I want to write at, at some point. And that's like a, um, an American Buddhism book, ah. a, a book that says we're not Tibetan, we're not Japanese, we're not Thai or Burmese. You know, we, you know, some of us might be, but, but that our tradition isn't, you know, trying to reproduce the Asian tradition, but that we're actually taking uh, a stand in this firmly rooted Western Buddhism. Mm. And so at some point I want to do that. I just don't have the energy for it right now. And then also when I think about doing it, I was like, well, what's the difference between that book and against the stream? Like I kind of already wrote that book. Uh, That's a good call. (laughs) 
Although I do have a good title for it. <laughs> oh, you do? Can you share it with us, but, or is it under wraps? But, but you know, just you know, something like around American Buddhism. Okay, you know, and that's kind of cool. Yeah, clear. Yeah, you know, but even that, it's like North American Buddhism, and then all of my friends in Europe are going to be pissed <laughs> and say, "Hey, you can't call this shit American Buddhism. It has to be." But Western Buddhism just doesn't have quite the right ring to it. Yeah. Uh, so that, and then. With my father dying this year, I had a little bit of a uh, motivation, although I'm not sure that I'll do it to maybe write a little bit of memoir stuff about my relationship with him. Um, some people have asked me, like, okay, Dharma Punks was 15 years ago. That book ends in 2000. What about writing a bit of a memoir about the last 15 years? Uh, I feel like there's an interesting book there with my divorce this year, my father dying, you know, there is a kind of, there's an interesting where, you know, 15 years later, 28 years into recovery and Dharma practice, how did this year unfold? So I think that that would be a sort of interesting memoir type book. Right. Plus you were back uh, in India. Yeah. And then I was back in India doing the 20 year reunion. Uh, so some ideas, but I don't know at the moment if I actually want to sit down and do any writing. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing about that. Uh, it's great though that your your energy is going into refuge recovery. It's it's really really taking off. It's awesome to watch it just flourishing. So, um, you know, deep bows to you for for that work for sure. Um, and before we wrap up, is there anything that I didn't ask uh, regarding refuge or anything else that you'd like to share before we uh, we bring this conversation to a close? I mean, I don't, th I don't think so. And I know that, you know, people will find us, um, you know, against the stream .org, yep. refuge recovery .com. Um, you know, if people need treatment, you know, and, and this interests them, uh, consider us. Um, if there's not a meeting in your town, start one. You don't need to be trained. It's peer led. I think in the book, it talks about like, if you have six months sobriety, maybe it's a year, um, you know, to start, you know, start a meeting and then, you know, we'll put it on the website and people will start showing up. Um, so, you know, just kind of a, an open, happy to let people that watch your show know about it, but also like support this if it resonates. Like, don't wait, you know, I know for you, you're too busy, but uh, for other people, don't wait for someone else to start a meeting. Start one, like get it going. You can be of service to that community in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We'll have the links up also on this page, and and uh, so people can just simply click on it. I encourage everyone to check it out. Um, check out the book. Even like you said, if it's not drugs or alcohol, it's applicable for anything, man. Food, sex, shopping. It's it's all relevant with refuge recovery. Um, I can't encourage people enough to read the book, as well as know your other books. They've been very helpful in my life and many others I know. So thank you for that, and thank you okay. again for your time. It's uh, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, man.